Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. Everyone enjoys accomplishment and achievement, but what happens when we take success and make it our ultimate goal in life? When you reach the pinnacle of success in any field, it's easy to get depressed, asking yourself, is this all there is? Furthermore, you may begin to fear that you won't be able to maintain your position as other star-eyed, would-be achievers are climbing to the top in an effort to push you off. How can we guard against worshiping the counterfeit god of success without settling into complacency or laziness? In this episode, we answer this question by embracing the goodness and joy of achievement while recognizing that our ultimate worth comes from God's gracious offer of love, demonstrated on the cross of His dear Son. Here now is Worshiping Success. I'm really excited about today talking about the idol of success because this is the kind of counterfeit God that tempts us all, but we're not all aware of it. So I think this is really going to be helpful for all of us to consider what we're living for, especially when it comes to achievement, to success, to career, these sorts of endeavors that we all pursue. God, I believe, builds into us a sense of excitement, happiness, a feeling of satisfaction when we achieve something. It might be baking a cake. It might be writing a paper, it might be building something outside. But when you finish, there is that sort of emotional payoff. Mm. I mean, I don't know why God designed that per se, but my guess is that so that we wouldn't be a bunch of slackers sitting around like, I don't want to do anything. But, you know, you go out, you do something, you achieve something, you produce something, and you feel good about it. And I I think there is a God-givenness to how he wired us to appreciate and enjoy success that I want to establish right at the beginning here, but also mention that there can be a dark side, there can be an addictive nature to it, where we can easily shift from pursuing, let's say, pursuing a promotion at our job and working really hard to get there, to confusing our identity with how much success we've had or we plan to have. And I was thinking of the example of somebody who, who's like in an airport. I was just in an airport yesterday and they comes before the person at the gate counter and is asking questions about their flight and their seat and stuff like that. The person for whom life is not going exactly as they want it to, which often in travel, it doesn't. And they say to the attendant, do you know who I am? That could be an indicator of someone who's now wrapped up their identity in their success mm rather than in who God says they are, or a more humble point of view. I think to say that, though, you feel like you have to be a bit of a household name, or you maybe work for a company that's a household name. And I do think there's many of us where we might feel like our name is not that well-known, but we still would, you know, stake our self-worth in our achievements and in our success, even if we feel like we couldn't quite say that to the attendant. Right. I mean, that's an extreme example, but we all do that to one degree or another at times. I've probably used this example before, and I'm sure you guys have heard it, but I always think of it. The year was 1997, and I had just one of the fastest computers that money could buy, mm-hmm. and I was a video game addict, and I was competing on this new invention called the internet against other teams, 
in a game called Quake, Capture the Flag. Internationally competing. That's right. And I remember slowly rising through the ranks of this, what do you call The leaderboards. Yeah, the leaderboards. And and then we're different teams. I was on the clan of Methodical Destruction, CMD. It was really one of the few times in my life where I felt like I was at the absolute pinnacle of success Mm -hmm. in a particular field. Yeah. A lot of that was due to my insanely high-speed internet connection at the college I was at, but, and, and the fact that I sold my car to buy a fast computer. But <laughs> leave that to the side. I remember getting like to the top, so to speak. I mean, it's not like well-defined that you're the number one Quake Capture the Flag player in the world at that time, but like people knew you. Mm. Like, oh, that guy, he's... The he's, CND dude. Yeah. Uh, my handle was White as Rice, a nickname my Vietnamese friend gave me for my overly pale skin in the winter seasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so anyhow, they would say, oh, why is Rice? Oh, he's, he's really good or whatever. And I, and I remember just like feeling so good about yeah, myself. Yeah. And I, would, I sacrificed everything for this game. You know, I stayed up all night. I would play hour after hour, skip my classes, skip going to parties even, <laughs> so I could play video games. And I remember feeling a sense, a sense of pride, like that's who I am. I am this super successful person in this very narrow niche of life. And also feeling the fear that mm-hmm. went with that. Like if I don't keep going, if I don't keep playing, if I don't keep my skills up and my equipment up, then I'm going to be surpassed in a day or in a week because this is a fast-paced situation. And I remember feeling to myself like this is exhausting. Staying at the top is just absolutely, and this is just such a stupid example, but like it gives us kind of a microcosm of the fallacy of pursuing success for the sake of success so that you can identify with success as a successful person who finds their worth in success. Yeah, and that's what Tim Keller says in the Counterfeit Gods book in the chapter about success. He's talking about how Madonna says, uh, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. Then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, capital S, I still have to prove that I'm somebody italicized. (laughs) My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. And then Keller goes on to say in analyzing that quote from Madonna, the driving force behind this is not joy, but fear. Well, it's funny that uh, example you give there reminds me of a professor I had who, who will remain nameless because she was riddled with this feeling of inadequacy. She was one of these overachievers where in a normal situation, once you become associate professor and you're trying for tenure, like there are certain things you focus on, right? You want to publish or perish, right? You want, to, you want your name to be out there. And She took it to a whole nother level. She wasn't satisfied just to do some biblical Greek. She needed to go to Greece to study the most difficult kind of Greek that they have, like ancient Greek poetry. And only then could she feel like she had any confidence because she was so trying to to prove that she was smart, prove that she was at the same level as everybody else. So she'd go to all the conferences. She she wrote a book. She got interviewed by NPR about her book. Still not enough. And she I remember her telling us this one story in class where she was at a conference and she gave a presentation and at the end of it an old man stood up, somebody who was well respected in the field, 
and he criticized what she said. Basically, he disagreed with her mm. and said that, pointed out some areas where he thought she was wrong. Mm. And she was completely devastated. I mean, it just destroyed her. The way she described it, it was like public humiliation. Yeah. And I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it was just like a right. scholarly discussion, probably a restrained scholarly discussion. But for her, it was absolutely devastating. And her whole goal is to sort of justify that she deserves to be treated with the same respect as everybody else. And you see people like that, and then you see other people who are like, maybe they don't even have as many skills as, as, as this professor does, but they're comfortable with it. Like they're driven in the sense they're trying and they're succeeding, but it's not defining them. Yeah, it's not their identity. Was she self-aware that that, that, that was a problem in her life and that's why she yeah, told you the yeah, story? Yeah, the way she said it was, for someone who is already convinced that you're not as smart as everyone else, hearing this criticism was just devastating. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's how she talked about it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's the same thing that I've seen that you mentioned from Madonna, which is it's a fear driving a desire to succeed. So it's like justify your, uh, your position in life. Yeah, it reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew, this parable can be applied to a lot of areas of life. And I think this is one of them, but Matthew seven twenty four, where he talks about the two foundations, you know, what you build your life on. So it sounds like this professor and Madonna and whoever else you want to hold up as an example, built their foundation upon themselves, their own personal success. Their self-worth was wrapped up in what they've achieved and where they're going. And he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And this professor and whoever else, um, that moment of, of that older academic person criticizing her, that was the rain that came, that was the floods, and that's what ultimately yeah. knocked her house down. I think of other super successful people, like Kurt Cobain, who killed himself, mm. or David Foster Wallace, who also killed himself, right? Yes, he did. He hung himself. He hung himself. So you, you have these people that are so successful, and most of us never actually achieve the top of our field. Like, Rose, you're a graphic designer, right? Yes, I am. So I don't... What's the top of that field? Is there, like, an, an award or um, something that people go for? No. I mean, you can get, like, local Addy Awards and stuff like that. Um, but really, you have to design something like I Love New York um, ah, to be yeah. at that level, right. to be so iconic, like, a, like Martin Gleason. Okay. Not everyone can do that. Shepard Ferry, like with the Obama Hope poster. Yes, yeah. yes. But even that will fade with time. Yeah. You have to invent Helvetica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's, like, it's a lot. You have to be like timeless and iconic. Wow. So... The chances of any of us reaching the absolute tippy top of our field is very small. And because of that, there's always this sense that I'm not there yet. So that pulls us forward. It could be good and bad. It's double-edged. Yes. It's double-edged sword. That's, yes. That's exactly what I was going to say. And what Tim Keller's point is like these people that do actually reach the top, that's when you see what your meaning is, is wrapped up in, what mm. your value is wrapped up in. And that's when you, the fear starts coming in of, oh man, how do I stay up here? Or what if somebody finds out that I, I cut a corner over there or I didn't do this right over here? 
And, or when you accomplish something, there's a lot of depression that can sit in. Like I finally reached what I've been shooting for for so long. This, this happens very frequently with marathoners because the marathon training cycle takes like half a year. For me, it took two years because I had to find the kind of shoes that worked with my body type and not have knee injuries and all that kind of thing. And then I finally got to the point and, and you finally get to the end after 26.2 miles and like everything has been sort of aimed at that for so long. And now you got there and now it's like, oh, mm. I guess it's over. Yeah. Now what? Yeah. And that's like kind of like superhero movies, right? Like mm. they always end at that exciting climactic moment. Right. And but they never like flash forward a couple of days and everybody just sitting around like, uh, yeah, so we beat the bad guy and all right, what's the next thing? Right, right. What's so interesting about this topic to me is that it's so universal. You have people like David Foster Wallace on the secular side and, and then, you know, there's examples in the Bible of this. A quote by Jim Carrey that stuck with me. Jim Carrey, as you know, is an incredibly successful actor. He said, um, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. This theme of, of fulfillment and success and in achievement not being the ultimate is so universally known by people who are wildly successful. You see it in, in pop culture and pretty much every industry. I mean, you, you look at the financial markets and the, and the big banks and the, the bankers who have ended their own lives when, when the stock market crashes. Right. Yeah, so similar to what you were just talking about, Sean, with the marathon and everything about your life, working up to that and preparing for that to be your absolute best. I've been reading a little bit about sports psychology and what happens um, to especially top athletes after they retire. This is from sports psychologist John F. Murray. He says, after all the adulation and excitement wear off and elite athletes come face to face with retirement and a more mundane life, they suffer a sense of loss, almost like a death. If you're Lance Armstrong, you realize that what you are is a cyclist. That is your identity. And if you feel you have one or two more titles in you, why let it go? Why not tackle unresolved challenges? Competing at that level provides a high that is hard to match. How can you not be addicted to that? And we totally understand that. I mean, none of us are elite athletes, but I think we understand the identity crisis and the loss of identity that would come with giving something up like that. And then often, you know, these top athletes will kind of go back and make a bit of a fool of themselves um, mm. being older. And in, in a sense, the identity has already been lost and you will never achieve that back. Um, and that is, again, when, when your foundation is something delicate and when it does not hold up to, to the pressure, to your old age, to, you know, whatever you're, you're building on that. It can be like building on the sand unless you're building on something like Christ, you're going to suffer that sort of identity loss and you're going to build yourself up for crisis. Yeah. When I was younger in high school, I had a similar experience on a much, much, much smaller scale. <laughs> I was very good at baseball and on all, all the all-star teams, uh, you know, little league, school ball. And um, I actually had a scholarship to play baseball in high school with this private Christian school. It was division D. It's not that, it wasn't that big a deal, but at the time I thought it was I thought it was huge. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm such a good baseball player. I think it was eighth or ninth grade. So the school combined their middle and high school. It was in the same building. And you had some younger people on varsity sports. And, and that was one of them for me. I think I was in eighth or ninth grade and, and I was on the varsity baseball team. And I didn't do well. I wasn't hitting. I wasn't getting a lot of playing time. I was probably making errors in the field. And I was at practice one afternoon I don't know how it came up, but the, but the varsity coach came up to me like he was talking about my swing or something. And I don't think he meant it to be as devastating as it was, but he said to me, I wish that I kept you down on JV. And that, that destroyed me. Wow. Yeah. And I don't think he meant it in a malicious way, 
but I mean, I internalized that. It affected me for the rest of the year. I didn't get back to like tip top playing form for a long time after that. It really shook me. It shook me deeply. And, and you can understand that I was excited about my skills and that's what I put my worth in back then. But yeah, it's so easy to, to get wrapped up in it. And it's so easy to be affected by it when the floods come and, and the rains come and, and it knocks your house over. You're going to share some sort of revealing secret with us like Dan just did? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, so, I mean, I've been Rose, thinking... Ro- this has never happened to Rose. She's like, no. she's well, already at the top of every field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've been uh, thinking a lot about idols and like my own kind of like what, why I tick and how to bring it maybe more in line with, with honoring God. But for me, I'm not competitive really with other people. I might kind of like pretend to be, um, but I'm not really. So I think my... Uh, one of the things I struggle with is rather than being driven, which is maybe how I appear to most people, um, deep in my gut, I'm terrified to fail at anything. Um, there's a lot of things I just won't undertake because I could never do it and, um, and I would fail. I don't have to be the best at like anything. I wouldn't even really want to be the best at most things because I would want to be in the limelight because I might fail. But fear of failure is a huge problem for me and I don't want to fail in anything. Everything that I undertake, I have to be at least competent, if not, and I, I would love to be stellar. But so much, and for many years in my life now, I've been aware of this and sort of being, sort of running from negativity and running from failure. And you know, if I, if I get into achievement in my fear of failure, that's great. I did a great job at not failing. But as I follow God, wanting to serve him better. For many years of my life, I have been working um, to focus on the positive. Instead of trying not to make a fool out of myself, how can I best glorify God and stuff like that? And that is not how I'm wired um, by nature at all. And I'm not, I'm not sure I can say uh, where this great fear of failure has come from, because it's never like I've gone out and like crazily failed at something. But that's a fear that, um, that I want to minimize and that I want to overcome and that I want to leave behind. And in its place. Um, I have been working so much more to have a desire to glorify God and care less about maintaining my own dignity and my own competence and instead saying, what can I do for God and how can I best glorify him? Mm. This subject also reminds me of David Foster Wallace's commencement speech. The whole speech is really phenomenal, but, and, and he's, a, I think, an agnostic. Anyhow, he's not a believer certainly not a Christian. I don't don't know if he was an atheist or an agnostic. Yeah. I'm not sure. So anyhow, I wanted to play this out for you here and uh, then come back and talk about it. This is from David Foster Wallace's commencement address at Kenyon College. Here are his words. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And a compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. 
The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. So what do you guys think about that? His commencement address is one of the most insightful things I've ever read. And it's especially interesting because it's coming from David Foster Wallace, who was a very, very secular person and very, at the beginning of his career, he was obsessed with success, obsessed with getting published. He told his writing students later on in life when he had sort of recovered from that drive that the worst thing that can happen to you is being published before 40. He drove himself mad, basically, heavily medicated for probably half of his adult life because he couldn't cope with his what he perceived as his lack of success. He had gotten success early in his career. And it just wasn't enough. And I think that experience was really conveyed in that commencement speech. One of the things that stuck out to me was that he says, <sighs> if you pursue these things, and the way I love the way he puts it, he says, if you, this is where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Mm -hmm. And if you're pursuing success, like in your career, for example, you, you can pursue and pursue and pursue and pursue, but at some point, either something's going to break and you're going to you're going to have your your breakthrough and achieve it and then you'll then you'll keep going in that direction or you'll get frustrated or or shut out or frozen in your whatever level you're at and then you can hit despair that way either way if that's where you find your meaning it will eat you alive in the end you're going to be one of these miserable people who thinks the world is just a bitter terrible place mm. and you become embittered towards life and cynical I don't want to be a cynical person. I want to be the kind of person like C.S. Lewis that like when I go outside, I smell the air and I smile at God. Mm -hmm. I see the blue sky and I give him glory. I hear the birds chirping. I feel the sun on my face or the crunch of the snow underneath my feet if it's winter. And I recognize that I'm in God's good world, even though it's fallen. Even though I might have the flu while I'm going through these <laughs> sensations, but um, I don't want to lose that perspective. Yeah. Later on in his commencement speech, I think he was trying to really impart some, some heavy wisdom on these kids who, you know, you're in college, we've all graduated college, it's, it's, you know, it's a heady time, you're on top of the world, you're about to start your, your real adult life. In six months, you'll have to pay back student loans. <laughs> he talks about the importance of learning how to think. And um, this is from um, David Foster Wallace's autobiography. It's by an author named D.T. Max, and it's called Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. Mm. But he uh, excerpts a piece of his speech here, D.T. Max does, and David Foster Wallace says, Learning how to think really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think. It means being aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how you construct meaning from experience. Because if you cannot or will not exercise this kind of choice in adult life, you will be totally hosed. Think of the old cliche about the mind being an excellent servant, but a terrible master. Mm. And DT Max goes on to write, uh, 
He explained to the students that they could stand in a supermarket line and experience nothing but the anxiety and irritation their college-augmented sense of superiority would entitle them to, or they could, in the midst of that same experience, open themselves up to the moment of the most supernal beauty. Quote, on fire with the same force that lit the stars, compassion, love, the subsurface unity of all things, end quote. It was up to them, of course. They could do as they chose. And then quoting here from the speech, but if you've really learned how to think, how to pay attention, then you will have other options. And I think what David Foster Wallace is talking about there is, is God. I mean, on fire with the, with the same force that lit the stars, compassion, love, the subsurface uni unity of all things, finding meaning in that, not in whatever circumstance that you happen to find yourself in or whatever unhappy thoughts or anxiety are going through your, is going through your mind in a given moment. Yeah, let's talk about the antidote just a little bit. Yep. So our biblically informed viewpoint on this is that we are supposed to find our satisfaction in God rather than in these other things. It's all built on grace rather than achieving a relationship with God through our prayers, through our moral discipline, or through what sort of courageous acts we do to reach others uh, with the gospel. Instead, it's all based on how God reaches down to us mm. and how through what he's done in Christ, we can have a relationship that is given to us rather than earned by us. And that just flips the whole script. Yeah. It's hard for us to handle as Christians. It's difficult for us to handle, even though we know it so well. I think many of us feel like we still have something to earn. But I think it's so different because the man-made religions are what you would expect Here's the five pillars. Here's the eightfold path. Here is the one, two, three, the ABC to get there. That's what we would expect. And in a sense, that's what we want because that's what we're familiar with. I think the scary thing um, about this grace is that we are set free to, to really fly um, and to go out and, and to express love instead of express fear. Sometimes that could be like so different from anything that we know that freedom to go out and to be removed from any idol, but to serve God um, and to strive for these huge things that we're set free to, it can be overwhelming. Um, and sometimes we're more comfortable being in control, having yeah. our little lists and our little rules. What you made me think of is trust because so long as you're in a traditional relationship, like for example, with the checkout person at the grocery store, that's a defined commodified relationship. Like they have certain responsibilities to you or like the 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 person at the drive-through when you when you get fast food like there's a, there's a certain there's expectation a there's a script i give you money you give me food like you have to give me food i gave you money there is this sense of control almost not manipulation but of equity our relationship with god does not have equity it's mm. completely unbalanced where he is the one who initiates, he's the one who's planned it all out, he's the one that lavishly gives it to us, and so we have absolutely no control over him, we have no ability to manipulate him, we have no ability to say, that's enough for me, because it's a trust relationship. Like the phrase you used there, Rose, scary grace, mm -hmm. that could be a book. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Keller talks about this in, his, in the chapter on success. He, sa he writes, uh, page 93, the idol of success cannot be just expelled. It must be replaced. The human heart's desire for a particular valuable object may be conquered, but, it, but its need to have some such object is in unconquerable. How can we break our heart's fixation on doing some great thing in order to heal ourselves of our sense of inadequacy, in order to give our lives meaning? 
Only when we see what Jesus, our great suffering servant, has done for us will we finally understand why God's salvation does not require us to do some great thing. We don't have to do it because Jesus has. That's why we can just wash. Jesus did it all for us, and he loves us. That is how we know our existence is justified. When we believe in what he accomplished for us with our minds, and when we are moved by what he did for us in our hearts, it begins to kill off the addiction, the need for success at all costs. I've heard in um, counseling for people with substance abuse that this is a common thing. It's um, very difficult to just give up what has been controlling your life. Instead, seek something new in your life that you can introduce. Um, Tim Keller says, the idol of success cannot just be expelled. It must be replaced. That's a common Mm. thing with substance abuse and and addiction um, and things like that. There can... They can introduce a new lifestyle, a new hobby, new social group, or whatever it is. In this context, um, it should be primarily God and then also the things of God. It can be introduced into your new life, and that can be the new thing that you build your life upon and that you ground yourself in. God's the only one that can bear the weight of our needs and our satisfaction. And Psalm 16 says it like this, O God, for I take refuge in you. The idea of, of God being the one that we have to come to for protection. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. And then later on in verse 5, the Lord, or Yahweh, is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. So in the present, we take refuge in God, and ultimately, he's what we get. I mean, that's the whole idea of the kingdom, is that we get God, he gets us, mm. and he gives us each other, that there is... And and he gives us the world, and everything is in harmony. Verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. It's not that I will not be shaken because of my own strength, my own military prowess. It's because I've set God at my right hand. And if he's at my right hand, I'm going to be okay. Verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And so this little psalm, I I just kind of skipped around in it, but there's a truth here. There's an ancient truth here about finding satisfaction in God, finding joy in His presence, and then when we have that at the top, go for it. Pursue your career. Pursue the baseball. Pursue graphic design. Pursue whatever God has put in your path, right? But... When it, if it fails, it won't destroy you. Mm. And if you succeed and get to the top, you'll be able to handle it, right? And that's, I think, the difference. So we're not saying just be lazy and sit around and don't try. I don't think that's what we're saying at all. But at the same time, we're saying get your perspective right before you sell out your wife, before you sell out your husband, before you sell out your kids, before you sell out all your friendships to become a workaholic, if God's the, the source of your, of your uh, sense of meaning, then you won't need to find it in your career. You can be content to do what is, is proper or, or maybe do a little extra to get ahead, but it's not going to just eat you alive. Yeah. And Paul talks about this in Galatians 6. He talks about those who strive for achievements in the flesh or achievements you know, in, in the world. And in Galatians 6, 11, he says, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Mm. That last bit of being crucified to the world, that's, that's at the heart of what we're talking about here. Your value system is not based on the world's perception of you. You're, you're crucified to the world. 
your only boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians is also a book that I was um, focusing on and thinking about this. And I think, um, well, it's largely written to people who wanted to follow the law in addition to following Christ, as if somehow following the law would really like authenticate your salvation or almost take you to the next level. I mean, so, absolutely, because that's what they're doing. They're saying, yeah. all right, you're a Christian, that's nice, but if you want to be really close to God, then keep the Sabbath. If you want to be really close to God, then get circumcised. If you want to reach the levels of the, of the greats of the ancient times, then eat kosher. And all that stuff sounded so holy. Like, oh, yeah, you, you guys do sound so holy. It was the whole like pharisaical thing coming back into this. If you've identified your idol and you feel like you need to achieve um, to authenticate yourself or to be a good Christian, and maybe it's your ministry um, that you really feel like you need to achieve in, read Galatians and, and think about where it says law. Think about whatever your, your need for achievement is. That can be a curse on you, but Christ can set you free. I really liked, um, I, it's always been very challenging in my life, actually, um, Galatians 3, I guess 2 and 3. Paul says to the Galatians, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? As if your continued achievements can continue to, to merit salvation. Obviously, salvation is a lifestyle that you have to choose to walk in, but it's not through your achievement that you work this salvation. It is by the achievement of Christ on the cross. In, uh, in Romans, Paul says, boasting is excluded because he has given us this gift by grace. Or Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Mm. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's the, that's the correct perspective. We're saved through grace because of what God has done. I mean, obviously we had to have faith in that, but he has it all set up for us so that as soon as we have faith, it's just freely given to us. That's what grace is. But then, once we've received it, we are then His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is now the life that God has ordained we pursue, rather than the old way of living. And it's, it's important to keep this balance, because it's so easy to slip into religiosity, and thinking that if we follow His commands, if we... If we practice enough righteousness, if we avoid enough sin, then God has to bless us. God has to do something for us. Traditional religion says the gods are blessing the successful. And that's and that came up in, in Jesus' ministry, too. They're like, yeah. or why was this man born blind? What, what did he sin? Did his parents sin? In other words, if something's wrong, then you have sinned. And if something's, and if you, like somebody's wealthy or whatever, or had a lot of children, or I, I don't know, like say four sons, then God's obviously blessing them. Mm. I'm about to have four sons. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> totally sarcastic. Obviously, <laughs> obviously <laughs> blessing. They didn't com to communicate. It reminds me of how they, uh, the Romans described the battle of Actium between Octavian and Brutus and Cassius. So Brutus and Cassius are the losers in that, which is why probably none of you have ever heard of them, except for like Et tu Brute was, you know, Brutus was one of, one of the ones who stabbed Julius Caesar. Thank you, Shakespeare. And uh, Shakespeare. So anyhow, th they had this battle, and Octavian went against Brutus and Cassius, and he won. And then later inscriptions retelling that story don't tell it like Octavian is such a brilliant military strategist. That's not how they describe it. What they describe it is that Apollo was fighting for Octavian. 
And so you get this idea that like Octavian must have been doing so many right things by the gods that the gods took up his cause. And the reason why he ends up becoming Augustus and the first great emperor was because the gods are blessing him. And you, and you kind of get that perspective like, okay, somebody has success, the gods are blessed. And that's the classic religiosity. But look at how the Bible undoes this script over and over and over. Moses, an 80-year-old fugitive from his land in a far country, God says, I want you to lead my people out of Israel. Very unlikely candidate, right? Very humble. Ruth, the Moabitess girl, totally obscure, totally separated from any kind of covenants of promise. She's not even a child of Abraham, mm -hmm. a descendant of Abraham. So, but yet she's the one that comes in and she's the great grandmother of King David. What about Samuel? Just a, a boy that really didn't have much going for him. He, his mother gave him over to Eli to raise him. Eli was a disaster. His sons were disasters, but somehow Samuel, this little child, God speaks to him and he responds. And God decides, this is going to be my prophet who's going to initiate the monarchy in Israel. Mm. And then uh, my last example is Mary. Mary, just a random Jewish peasant. She's not noted for any accomplishment anywhere. But through the angel, God says, greetings, Mary, highly favored one or favored one, right? And so it's, it's like, why, why is she favored? Because God chose her to show her grace, to give her this opportunity to become the mother of, of the Messiah, right? And so what I'm saying is, and I'm not saying that God only works with outsiders, but like those are good examples to us of getting off this script of religiosity that says, if I achieve, then I can control God. And if I'm suffering, then I must have messed something up, and so God's punishing me. Mm. And, and God just undoes that by choosing these, these outliers and these humble people and raising them up to positions of great influence. And, they, and they, what you see with these people, too, is that they can handle it because they know it's by grace. Right. It's not their own brilliance that got them there. And there are records in that vein. There are records throughout the Bible where God makes it abundantly, abundantly clear that, that your success is not due to your, your, your own power. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the record in um, Judges 7 of Gideon. And he starts, mm. he's, he's about to go into battle and he's got these 10,000 men and God has him repeatedly winnow it down from 10,000 men to just 300 to go against this large force. So now there's only 300 people and, and everybody's like, you know, what are we doing here? Like there's only 300, we, we have a whole army, why aren't we using them? The point was that God wanted to make it clear to the Israelites that they're not overcoming in battle due to their own power and their own might. And then when the battle actually happens, he has them, um, what was it, break pitchers and, and cry with a loud voice. And, and that's what, that's what won, won the battle and made them victorious there. It wasn't some big guy with a big sword on a big horse. Uh, throughout the Bible, there are dozens and dozens of records of, of, of God making it abundantly clear that it's his power, it's not yours. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 ends the chapter by saying, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Looking at the flip side of it, I was reminded of Micah 
who in the book of Judges, chapters 17 and 18, had wandered away from his hometown of Bethlehem to the hill country of Ephraim. And this Levite comes to the household of Micah, and Micah says to him, look, I'll pay you 10 shekels and a suit of clothes each year, and you could be my priest. I don't know if you guys listen to Paris Reedhead's 10 shekels and a shirt, but this is that text <laughs> here. And, uh, you know, so I was thinking about that. Like, here's this guy. He's a Levite, but he's, he's not a priest, or at least he's not serving as a priest in the temple area, which is where a priest would serve. And he's all the way up there in the hill country of Ephraim. And why does he go for this? He knows idolatry. Like, who knows idolatry is wrong other than a Levite? Somebody who is like kind of like somebody for whom the book of Leviticus is written. Right. <laughs> knows it back and forwards. Right. And, and like maybe maybe he's not literate. Maybe he hasn't read all this himself. But like this is his world. Mm-hmm. This this is what he would know. And he has no problem. He's like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll um, yeah, you make the idol. I'll be your priest. You consecrate me. Like Mike, this guy Micah's got any authority to consecrate priests. Mm-hmm. And then later on, the whole tribe of Dan comes along. Your people. So. <laughs> and they say, well, is it better to be a priest to one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? And it says that the priest's heart was glad. You know, he's like, he's about to sell out. This guy's giving him basically his whole livelihood, this Micah, mm-hmm. so that he can be a priest to Dan. And basically, he, he helps them rob his master. And then he goes off with them and he helps them to practice idolatry. And so the conclusion at the end of Judges chapter 18, verse 30, is that it says, the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. That is a huge statement. This one success-driven person who apparently didn't have it going on in Bethlehem moved out of town to, to find his own way, to make a mark on the world. And when he got there, he sold out his God so that he could have respect and a steady income, financial security. And then when a better offer came, he's just like, yeah, why would I want to just be loyal to this one guy or forget being loyal to Yahweh because he had already sold out God before that. I'll, I'll be the priest of this whole new tribe. Mm, it was transactional. Right, and he goes, and, and he does it, and he has, no, he has no moral problems with it at all. And yet, this idol of success leads to the idolatry of an entire tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, all the way up until the days of captivity of the land. I mean, the impact of this kind of thinking is just devastating. We have to be vigilant in keeping God on the throne in our own hearts, rather than allowing success or... Uh, the desire for achievement to replace God, push God off the throne of our hearts. And then this is something that we have to do over and over again, because Mm. throughout our lives, especially when we experience either failure or success, we need to check ourselves, check our hearts, because this idol is, is not like the dead idols, the old statues. This one is more like a spider that's always climbing its way up, and we have to keep knocking it down. And that's just the battle we face in the kind of world we live. And we, we have to continually renew our minds and to continually put first God in our lives. And by doing that, I think we can enjoy success mm-hmm. and get through failure. Because look, the fact of the matter is we're all going to have both in our lives. 
Yeah, and it's something that, Sean, like you said, that you constantly have to check up on. I mean, pray about this stuff, uh, incorporate it. Do your, you know, when you're, when you're checking in with your own spiritual health, I mean, really ask God to give you insight about where your motivation is. This bulletproofs us so much. I think having the right view of God and achievement and God to be the foundation of everything and then for you to achieve as a way to glorify God and as a way to worship him. Um, I think it bulletproofs you, like you said, Sean, to, to go out and strive in a healthy way and then to fail in a healthy way. First Peter 1 tells us that in Christ, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have that promise. And guess what? When we put our hope in Christ, it's not built on our works. It's not built on our achievement and us always being on the top. That sets us so free because the important things are reserved forever, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Thanks so much for listening. Please continue to give us your lovely feedback. I'm going to say goodbye in Hawaiian. Ahui hao. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.